welcome back to the Mathetai podcast. My name is Mike. I'm excited you're here with us. I'm so blessed that you've decided to spend your time and uh, listen to uh, our teaching through the scriptures. Um, hope that this is a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, and that it encourages you in your walk as we consider all that the Lord has for us through his scriptures. We are looking at the book of Acts. Uh, in our last time, we talked about the introduction to the book of Acts. We looked at verses 1 through 4, where Luke lays down his theme for the writing, why he wrote this book. And we find that in verse 4. He says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke is writing to this fellow Theophilus, whether it was an individual or a group of people, we don't know, but we can certainly ap apply it to each of us. And he's writing that we would have certainty, certainty concerning the things regarding Jesus. Now, in that day, eyewitness accounts were important. And so Luke has gone through the painstaking effort of researching, of looking at people's stories, hearing the firsthand accounts. He was a travel partner to Paul. He would have known Peter and many of the disciples and gotten the firsthand accounts of the life of Christ. Um, from the very beginning all the way to the end, he would have known Luke's, uh, Jesus's mom. He would have had great access. And in compiling his account, he says, there's many others that have sought to do this already. There's already stories out there. He says, but I felt it necessary for me to add my voice to this, to give you my orderly account. And so that's what we're looking at here. And we saw that just in the introduction, uh, Luke's background, why he's qualified for this, how academic of a writer he is. In just those first four verses, he gives a very classical Greek introduction. Now, as we come to the next section here, really chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through the end of chapter 2, we've got the birth and the childhood of, of Jesus and of John the Baptist. And they're placed side by side for a reason. This is a very unique section to the Gospel of Luke. It's separated from the preface, verses 1 through 4, in both its style and its tone. So stylistically, it changes from a very Greek formal academic introduction to a uh, Semitic Greek narrative, uh, so a, a uh, Hebrew-Greek mix there. Um, and it's very biographical rather than introductory as the first four verses were. And it, and it makes sense because Luke is doing these interviews of these individuals who are very uh, Hebrew in individuals, Paul and Peter and the other disciples. These were all Hebrew people. And it were the Hebrews, it was the Jews, that were looking for the Messiah. So their Old Testament telling of the Messiah was all Jewish nature. So as he's doing his interviews, he's learning about the coming of the Messiah and what the Old Testament had to say about that, and he's applying it to Jesus in this section here. So it's a very Hebrew uh, stylistic section here. Um, it's chronological in the sense that he's putting uh, John the Baptist's information first, and he intersperses the, uh, the story account as it goes through John the Baptist's parents, then to the parents of Jesus, then the parent sets meet, and then we have the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And so it's a very chronological, well-crafted, formulated section. We also see in this section numerous characters that we either don't hear from again or we rarely hear from. 
There's folks such as Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents. There's Simeon and Anna, uh, the priestess and, and the older people that were in the temple at the birth. And then there's Mary. And surprisingly, we don't hear about Mary again until chapter 8, where we hear from her briefly, and that's about it that we hear from her. So there's a, a unique section of scripture that we're going to be going through today here. Now, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke are the only two that talk about the infancy, uh, the birth and infancy of Jesus, much less John. And there's no major common ground between the two. They both have their own perspective, but there are numerous items in which they're in agreement to. In their unique tellings of the, the birth narratives, both Matthew and Luke agree on numerous things. First of all, they both place the births in the reign of Herod. Uh, they both talk about Mary being a virgin engaged to Joseph, but they're not yet living together. Joseph being of Davidic descent, uh, the angelic announcement of the birth, Jesus being a son of David, uh, the conception of Mary through the Holy Spirit, uh, Joseph having no part in that conception there at all. They talk about the name of Jesus being divinely provided. This was not something that came from the family. The angel speaks of Jesus as a savior in both accounts. Uh, and Jesus is born after Mary and Joseph had begun to live together. So Joseph took Mary in after she was found to be with child. And that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and they settle in Nazareth where Jesus grows up. So they're in agreement about some of those major issues, both Matthew and Luke. But both of them have their own unique tellings of these accounts. Now, as we look specifically at Luke, we're going to see that there's a parallel between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. Uh, we see uh, both in both sets of these, we see that the parents are introduced. In John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, which we'll look at, uh, we see Zechariah and Elizabeth introduces the parents of John. And then in verses 26 and 27, we see Mary and Joseph introduces the parents of Jesus. And then we see the annunciation or the announcement of the birth following that in each of those instances. Uh, the mother's response, Elizabeth's response earlier and Mary's response later. And then we see the actual birth at the end of chapter 1. We see the birth of John. The beginning of chapter 2, we see the birth of Jesus. And then we see the circumcision and naming of the child. Uh, again, uh, verses 59 through 66 of chapter 1, we see John. And then chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we see Jesus. And then we see a prophetic response to each of these births. We see Simeon and Anna, the end of chapter 1. And we see a prophetic response in chapter 2 regarding Jesus. And then the child grows. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, it's John, verse 80. And then in chapter 2, verses 40 through 52, we're going to see the growth and development of Jesus up into his young adulthood before his public ministry. And so this is a... a putting these two together on purpose because the relationship between John and Jesus is very important for us to grasp. John doesn't just come out of nowhere. John's not just another person doing this job. John is the herald to the Messiah. Uh, we're going to see this today as we look at the birth of John. We're going to stretch back to Malachi and see how the Old Testament ended and what we should be looking for. And we're going to see how John fits that. So let's dive right into uh, Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verses 5 through 7 and get introduced to the parents of John. It says there, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a pre, or king of Judea, sorry, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, this is a an important passage, and it would have been shocking to the Hebrew audience, at least, of the day. It starts off there, it says, in the days of Herod. Now, this is a popular way to start a biography. We're talking about Herod the Great. He was born in 73 BC and died in March or April of 4 BC. He was the uh, the Roman-appointed king of the region of Judea, which included Jerusalem and most of modern-day Israel. And he began his kingship or his reign there in Judea in about 37 BC, uh, up until his death in about March or April of 4 BC. His father was Antipater, the Idumean or the Edomite. So he's half Jewish. And he was a great administrator. He built incredible buildings, had an incredible project going on, including the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that we know as the second temple, the one that Jesus would have seen was the one that Herod would have built upon. And coming back from their uh, Babylonian captivity, the the Jews under uh, Nehemiah rebuilt the temple and they reinstituted the practice there, but the temple just didn't have its former glory. And so a few hundred years later, Herod comes on scene and wants to keep peace in the region. In order to do that, he's got to take care of his Jewish population and he's giving a tribute to his Jewish heritage. So he improved upon the temple and applying gold and fine jewels and just really making it a centerpiece and a showpiece. And so it was a beautiful sight to see. But in order to do that, Herod took control of the temple itself. Herod, as king, exercised a political control over the priesthood. So he would often appoint priests to his own agenda, ones that would approve his own end and allow him to live the life that he wanted to live while still keeping favor with the Jewish people. Um, He abolished the lineage rules. So no longer did you have to be from the line of Aaron to be a priest, much less of Levi. Uh, but he put priests in place that were loyal to his reign. And so he had the authority of the priest so he could control the temple and what was going on in the temple. He also issued a half-shekel tax on the Jewish people. And he did that under the guise of his building projects, that the Jewish people would pay a tax to the government there, and that tax would be put back into the building and betterment of the community. But it ended up being a a struggle for the Jewish people, an additional tax upon the temple taxes, upon all of these other things he was taking from the people. Um, And the people never really wanted to give anything to Herod in the first place. He was considered an outsider. He was the uh, representative of the occupying Roman force. And so he was never accepted by the Jews, but he was half Jewish and he had the favor of the Roman army, the favor of Rome. And so he was never looked upon as a faithful Jewish person or a friend of the Jews in any way. He was the, uh, the enemy so much uh, that perhaps even groups like the Zealots would have risen up to fight against to get rid of the Roman occupying forces there. Now, in contrast of Herod, we see that there was a priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah is going to be the father of John the Baptist. He's not just any old priest. It says he's a priest of the division of Abijah. And now this means that uh, he's from the line of Aaron. He's not a Levite, so he doesn't get the Levitical priesthood 
uh, benefits and privileges, but he gets to serve in the temple. And he's from the line of Abijah, which is the eighth order of priests. And 2 Chronicles chapter 24, we see that the priests were laid out uh, in their 24 different orders. So from every uh, section, there were 24 groups. And twice a year, they would have to go and serve in the temple. They would go for a week, serve their duty in the temple, and then go back to their homes. And so uh, there were... um, a rotation system that worked very well for them. Again, First Chronicles 24 verses 7 through 18 talks about this system. Um, twice a year they would come in. So we don't know if this was Zechariah coming in for his fall or his spring service, but Zechariah's uh, of the, the division of Abijah and he's going to be going to the temple there. And so his wife is Elizabeth. So we have a, a priest from the proper line. He's He's not been subjected to Herod's uh, leadership, but he's from the proper line. He's a proper priest, and he has a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the priests were free to marry any faithful Jewish person that they wanted to. They didn't have to marry another person from the line of Aaron, but Zechariah married Elizabeth, who's a daughter of Aaron. And so you have the, the purest, in the mind of a Hebrew Jewish person, you have the purest lineage being demonstrated here. We have a priest marrying a daughter of a priest and, and, and who's keeping that pure line of priesthood. Uh, just the, the, the respect that that would have driven just from that lineage alone was incredible for them. And so we see there that in verse 6, they were both righteous before God. If, if their lineage wasn't enough, their service wasn't enough, their participation in that wasn't enough, they would have already had great standing simply on that alone. But they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this testimony of their character, it, it shows them to be exemplary Jews. Not only did they have the superior ancestral purity in lineage, but they were individuals of the highest moral and religious integrity. So these were the best of the best. You you couldn't ask for any better people in the eyes of a Jewish person, faithfully serving God, loving God, following the commandments of God. These were people that were were the the best Jews that you could imagine. And so verse 7 becomes a shock to a Jewish mind. You've got the, the cream of the crop as far as lineage, as well as as far as character, And verse 7 says, but in spite of their lineage, in spite of their character, something else was going on. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, given the quality of the couple, verse 7 was a terrible thing because God controls the womb and children were seen as a sign of blessing and a sign of favor from the Lord. That's intrinsic in the Jewish faith, that children are an honor and a blessing from the Lord. And so uh, barrenness, to to be barren and not be able to have children, was a sign of divine displeasure. It it was even an act of punishment upon an individual who was unfaithful. Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 and 18 talk about that. And so for, for the people with the pure lineage, blamelessness before God, for them to be barren was a contradiction to the Jewish mind. And not only was Elizabeth barren, but they were both advanced in years, so past childbearing age. They were too old, and there was no remedy remedying their situation. The, the, the solution to their apparent pain was 
and the barrenness and the lack of a child did not rest with them. There was no hope within them for anything different, for that pleasure and the blessing of children that God would bestow on his faithful people. And so the, the, the introduction in just those three verses or so, or four verses, was a very shocking one to the Hebrew people, that you have the best of the best Jewish people here in the days of Herod, and they had not sold out to Herod, but they were blamelessly following God, serving in the temple of the priestly line, but they didn't have the traditional understanding of the favor of God. They didn't have a child. They were barren and advanced in years, and there was no hope in them. And so we see their predicament. And then in verse 8, we come to the solution here. Verse 8, we, we read that now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, while Zechariah was serving, so he's going for that week-long priestly duty time, and he was, uh, according to that custom, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Now, this was a very special thing in the life of a priest because what would happen is there were so many priests at this time that certain duties had to be uh, handed out as a special favor or blessing to certain individuals. And so, for Zechariah to have this opportunity to lead the burning of the incense in the temple was a high privilege that would have only happened once in his lifetime. And so it, it was a uh, incredible thing here. And, and so it tells us there that he, he's going into the Holy of Holies. He, not the Holy of Holies, not the inner sanctuary, but the holiest place just on the outside of that. And just outside of that entrance to the Holy of Holies was the incense table where they would burn the incense representing the prayers of the people. And so for Zechariah to have that uh, privilege to go in, uh, he would draw lots there. That means it was the human will was removing from it. God would direct who that lot would fall to. Um, and five people were chosen to enter in there uh, with one person leading it. So Zechariah is the leader here. The others were his assistants to carry the materials in and they would get out as quick as possible because they, they didn't want to be caught in that place with an impure thought or with anything wrong and be struck dead. Even in that holy place, not in the Holy of Holies, but just outside of that, it was such a sacred place that they would get in, get their job done and get out as quick as possible was the mentality. And so after this, Zechariah would have been revered by others as a uh, not only a priest of great lineage, a priest of great character, but not a, now a priest of great blessing, having performed this service and this duty. And so statistically speaking, it was rare. Very few priests received this opportunity in light of all of the other priests that were there. And so finally, it's Zechariah's turn. Something seems to be going right for Zechariah. It appears to be his chance. And so what happens is this priest would enter the, with two assistants. One would carry the burning coals in a golden bowl. And the other one would carry the golden censer with the incense in it. And after the assistants brought their portions, they would retreat out and they would leave Zechariah alone to complete his ceremony. He might have one assistant stay to help carry things back out again, but Zechariah would be on his own now for the ceremony. And this was the most solemn, holy moment of the entire ritual of the whole time. The incense would burn. He would put it on that, that incense burner table there and the incense would, would burn up there. It would release a cloud of smoke that smelled sweet and it would rise up to heaven, 
taking the thanksgiving and supplications and prayers of all of the people up to God. And it, and it was a, a, a high holy moment for all the people there. That's why it says in verse 10 that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So everybody's outside waiting, looking, anticipating for their prayers to go to heaven. They're, they're looking for this great thing to happen. And they're waiting for Zechariah. Uh, they're gathered outside in prayer. They're in the courts outside surrounding the holy place. That's as close as they could get. And once the priest would come back out, remember, he'd want to do that job quickly and then get out. Once he comes out, he would give the response of the Lord to the people. Um, the expectation is that he would conclude by uh, giving the priestly blessings from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And it would be an incredible moment. But let's read on in verse 11 and see what happens here. It says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is an incredible section of scripture here about the favor of God poured out on Zechariah and Elizabeth. So verses 11 and 12, this angel appears at the right side of the altar. This would have been the south side of the altar, uh, the golden altar would have been to his left side. The candelabra would have been on his right. So the angel standing right in between those two. And uh, this would have been a radical thing because angels didn't appear all the time in Old Testament. And angels carried with them a great weight and authority and power from God. They were holy beings and greatly revered. So to be visited by an angel was again another blessing. So not only did Zechariah get to serve in the temple at this high blessing, have the lot fall unto him, but now an angel appears to him. This is a, a double, tremendous blessing for Zechariah at this point. It's overwhelming all of the stuff lining up for Zechariah right here. And it says that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. He, he responded with fear. Now, this was the common way that you would respond to an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. There's 60 times an angel would appear to an individual. And every one of those, the individual was frightened. They were afraid. Uh, we can think back to Joshua. We can uh, think back to the kings. And, and those that, that saw the angels there, uh, the appearance would have been astonishing and overwhelming, much less the surprise, because Zechariah was left there in the holy place alone to conclude the service. You weren't expecting someone else to show up. So just the surprise, the appearance, the, uh, the, all of the stuff surrounding this, it would have been overwhelming for Zechariah. And then the angel has a message. Starts off saying the common thing, don't be afraid, Zechariah. You know, fear not. Your prayer has been heard. Now, the question always comes up, which prayer was heard? Was it Zechariah hadn't prayed yet, and he appeared to be offering the prayers of the people. The prayers of the people would have been for freedom, for deliverance, for salvation, for safety. 
And so perhaps those prayers were answered. But I, I think it's a, a dual attendre, if you will, that, that there's an immediate prayer of Zechariah because the, the angel goes on to talk about your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Zechariah had been praying for years, perhaps we can assume, that he would have a child, he would have a son that he could pass on the godly lineage to. And so, first of all, that, that yes, your prayer is heard, John. Your lineage will continue. Your son will be born. And, and perhaps it's also the prayers of the people are heard as well. He, God intends to fulfill all of these things. But your prayer is heard, John. God's heard you. Your wife is going to bear a son. She's going she's to get pregnant, and you're going to have a son, and you're going to call his name John. Now, <clears throat> Elizabeth was going to be the one that bears a son. But if you remember a few verses earlier in verse 7, they were both advanced in years. She's past childbearing age. Now, this should remind us back to Genesis, where an angel visits Abram and Sarah and says that they're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs at this. It's a, a similar account. And so you'd almost have to put those side by side. And we'll do that in just a little bit here as we look deeper into this. But you're going to call his name John. Not a family name, but there's a name there that uh, I want you to call him. And they're going to have him call him that for a reason. Now, verse 14 begins to talk about what this child is going to mean to the people. He says, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So first of all, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth, you're going to have joy because the barrenness has been overcome. God has poured out his blessing and favor on you, and it's going to bring gladness and joy to you. You're going to be excited by this. You're going to be happy with this. It's going to be wonderful. And if we look ahead to verse 58, we can see that, that those around the birth of John are celebrating at what God is doing in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. So there's great joy and gladness for Zechariah and his family. But future generations as well will rejoice at his birth. You can jump ahead uh, if you'd like to, to, to verses uh, 16 and 17, we can see what there, he's going to do for these future generations. He's going to restore relationships and he's going to prepare people for the Lord himself. So it was an incredible call from God. In the verse 15, it says, for he will be great before the Lord. Now, not just good, he's going he's to be great before the Lord. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says that there's no one greater than John, born amongst men. So, so John is, is one of the greatest men in the eyes of Jesus, probably because of his position, his role, and his function, that he's going to do something very incredible. So verse 15 continues, he must not drink, strong wine, or drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, he's got a dedicated lifestyle. A lot of people look at this and they say, oh, John was a Nazarite. He took the Nazarite vow. But what we have here is we only have one portion of the Nazarite vow, not all of the other aspects. Uh, there were three requirements for a Nazarite vow, and uh, only one of these here is, is given. You know, under the normal Nazarite vow, uh, you're not supposed to, to drink, you're not supposed to cut your hair, and you're supposed to not touch dead bodies. Uh, drink is the only thing mentioned here for John. So f he's got some sort of a dedication to the Lord, whether it was a full Nazarite vow or not. <clears throat> we do see him unshaven and, and rough condition a little bit later on, but that does not necessarily indicate the Nazarite vow. But he's dedicated in, in that respect. Um, he's already a Levite, so he's already got the priestly position, so I don't think he needs a Nazarite vow to go on top of that. He's already consecrated to God. 
Um, and the priest was not allowed to drink during their service anyways, so it seems to fit in there. But John was, it says there, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Now, this was something that in our day and age, we, we take it for granted. Everybody, you're born again, you're filled with the Spirit. In the days prior to the death of Christ and the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was reserved for specific people for specific purposes. So not everybody got to enjoy the filling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So this was special. And we see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is oftentimes contradicted or, or contrasted with the drinking of alcohol and the drinking of wine. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, it talks about the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So under whose control are you placing yourself? Are you placing yourself under the control of alcohol and uh, the things that are brought forth from that? Or are you placing yourself under the control of the Holy Spirit? So John here is filled with the Holy Spirit, free from strong drink and wine, meaning he's got a clear mind. He's acting clearly. He's acting without inhibition, without uh, remorse, without regret for any of those things. And it's even from his mother's womb, from the earliest time forward. This is His entire life was a dedicated, special purpose. <clears throat> Now, we're going to see a little bit more about John as we get into chapter 3. So we're going to leave that there. But let's look a little bit of his mission in verses 16 and 17. Because there's a special thing that's going on here. It says in verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, at this time, Israel was considered unturned or in rebellion against God. They, they were not following God the way that God designed to be followed. Their temple service was tainted. Herod had gotten into the priesthood. The finances, the, we, we see the battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the groups that had arisen and turned the law of God into a burden, into something that it was never meant to be. And so Israel is now pursuing righteousness by their works rather than by faith in God. As all the way back into Genesis, it says that Abram was counted righteousness because of his faith. And so uh, the people had now turned their faith into works. If we do these things, then we'll be okay. And so they're unturned in that sense. But God here continues to describe himself as their God. He's not left them, even though the people have turned away from him. And so even though Israel acts contrary to the commands and expectations of God, God remains faithful and he's never forsaken the mess as people and he never will. <clears throat> And so he's going to turn many of the children back to God, back to the true worship of, of God. And verse 17, and he, John, will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is going to go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of of Elijah. Now, in order to really grasp what that's talking about, we've got to go back to the end of the Old Testament, back to Malachi chapter 4. So if you flip back to Malachi chapter 4, this is how the Old Testament leaves off. It, it leaves us with these verses here. So in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is where we're getting this from. <clears throat> it says there, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
Now, the idea of I'll send you Elijah the prophet in verse 17 says he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father, uh, fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That's really out of uh, chapter four here. <clears throat> and he says before the great and awesome day of the Lord, that's the day of judgment. Before God comes in judgment, that final judgment, I'm going to send a prophet to you. And that prophet will turn people back to God. He's going to do something to return people to God there. And Malachi 4, 6, it, it, it's placing the fathers, the leaders, the men who were the head of the families, the head of the home, it's placing them in the category of the disobedient. And so he's going to turn the fathers back. And he places the children back in the category of the righteous there. He's going to turn the, the fathers back to their children. And so uh, he's, he's representing the authority of the people and the misrepresentation that those people had given. And so generally the leaders of the Jews, the political leaders, even fathers in their own households, were misrepresenting the authority that God had given to the men and not leading the people effectively. He says, I'm going to turn them back. Uh, I'm going to, in the power and the spirit of Elijah, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and restore proper leadership. And then the second part there, he says, I'm going to return the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And so another way to say that is, is so that they have the thought of the just. So they think in the way that a just person would think. Now, this can be a reference back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Or even back in Malachi chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. And so the idea is he's going to turn back the disobedient, those who have rejected truth, those who have rejected righteousness and justice. He's going to turn them back to think properly about what is just and what is right. And so all of those who were abusing the people, who were stealing from the people, who were uh, taking the things of God and making them profane, he's going to turn them back to true wisdom. And then finally, he says there, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this is a, a reference now to the eschatological anticipation. That eschatological is a big term for meaning end times, the future. Uh, so it's an anticipation of what's coming. He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Because if the Lord is coming, you need to be ready for him. A king would send a herald before them to announce the, the arrival of the king. And that way, the people could get ready. And so John is that person. John is the one who's coming to announce the coming of the king. He's leading the way so the people can get prepared, so the people can be ready to greet the king and with an appropriate response. And so John's got an incredible ministry here laid out before him. He's got an incredible thing going on that would have been well-respected and, and well-cherished by the people. And all of the favor that God's bestowed on him, despite his condition in verses uh, 6 and 7 there, despite the barrenness of his family, he's got the double favor of the lot falling to him, performing the service, and then the angel appearing. Uh, it's an incredible scene. And now the promise that your son is going to be the promised forerunner from the book of Malachi blows Zechariah away. So Zechariah's response, verses 18 through 20. So Zechariah said to the angel, okay, so he's talking back now. He says, how should I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
All right, this was, it, it sounds like an innocent answer. We, we see this in other times in the Old Testament. You know, Gideon asked for a fleece twice. Um, others have asked for a sign. Others asked for uh, some sort of a response there. Uh, in Genesis 15, Abram asked for a, uh, a show there. Judges 6, and, uh, Hezekiah and 2 Kings 20, all of them asked for a sign or some indication that what the angel spoken was true. But all of them appeared to ask out of faith. In other words, you're telling me this, and I believe it to be so, but give me something to hold on to for confirmation. Here, Zechariah seems to be asking out of doubt. You know, you can almost hear the sarcasm. Ah, how am I supposed to know this? I mean, come on. You've got to be get serious. Now, how, how can I know this? I'm an old man. I'm an old guy. I'm way too old for this stuff. My wife is advanced in years. It's too late, buddy. I don't know who you think you are, but this isn't going to happen. And so Zechariah seems to have a lapse of faith, a doubt here. Even though it's something he'd been praying for, he almost mocks the word of God being brought by the angel. <coughs> Much worse, Zechariah even had the history of the God doing this in other people's lives. Uh, back in Genesis 15 with Abram and Sarah, almost a, a, an exact account there. And so Zechariah seems to be mocking all of this. Uh, he seems to be laying this out saying, you know what? It just couldn't happen. Not not right. Now, verse 19, the angel gets to respond. He says, and the angel answered him. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So in response to Zechariah's answer, where he says, Zechariah says, I am an old man. Gabriel says, well, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> you may be an old man, but I'm Gabriel. And, and Gabriel, the name, means man of God or the mighty one of God. So Gabriel is a mighty one of God coming to proclaim this message to Zechariah. He says, not only am I Gabriel, not only am I a mighty one of God, but I stand in the presence of God. You think you're close here in the, in the holy place, in this outer place? He says, I stand right next to God. I'm, I'm in there in his full glory. I'm right next to him. Now, this could be he's one of the angels of Revelation chapter 8, verse 2. We see there's angels around the throne there. There's a, a select number there. It could be that he's, he's simply present around the throne of God in a unique way. But Gabriel says, you, you may be an old man and your wife may be old and you may be a priest and you may be from the right lineage and you may be a, a righteous person, but I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and give you this message. You, you, this is good news I'm bringing to you. You need to receive this. And so the sign is going to come. Zechariah, you want to know how you're going to know this is true? Well, verse 20, behold, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place <laughs> because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah, your, your response to me was one of doubt. You didn't believe, even though I'm a mighty angel of God, even though I'm coming from the throne of God, bringing you the word of God, you didn't believe. So I'll give you a sign. It's not going to be the sign you expected. It's not a sign like those uh, accounts in the Old Testament give you, but here's your sign. You're not going to be able to talk. You're going to be mute. You're going to be unable to voice these things out until this is fulfilled, until these things take place and they'll be fulfilled. And so verse 21, we see that the people, 
Back to the people now. All this is going on inside the holy place between Zechariah and the angel. No one else is a part of this. Everybody is outside waiting for Zechariah to emerge, share the response of the Lord and give the priestly blessing and fulfill this high holy moment where the prayers of the people have been lifted up and heard by God. They're anticipating, they're desiring this, they're wanting this. But the people were waiting in verse 21 for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He's been in there a long time. Is something wrong? (laughs) They would start getting worried. They would stop praying and start murmuring. And their little holy hush of prayer would become a a little session of of murmuring back and forth. What's taking so long? Why isn't he out yet? Something must be wrong. We need to go. And all of the stuff would have started there. And then verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They couldn't get their blessing. Their number six priestly blessing, they weren't able to get. He couldn't share the response of the Lord. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. There was something about him that indicated something happened. And so all of the people were astounded at this. And it says he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And so he would uh, act out uh, whatever. He's trying to tell the story, but he can't use words. He's miming it to them. He's doing whatever he can. And, And for the full week, The people would have been amazed and astounded and and Zechariah would have been unable to speak to anybody. He couldn't share the tale. He could only sign it out. He could only act it out. He could only try to express what was told to him there. But it's not the kind of thing that you would expect. If you knew Zechariah and you saw him coming out, you wouldn't expect that, oh, he probably saw an angel who told him he's going to have a child. That would have been the last thing on your mind. Maybe God had a special word for Israel. Maybe God did something incredible in there. Maybe this vision was for uh, the blessing of the people or our freedom from Rome. They would have been thinking on a community level, on a national level, rather than the individual level. And so when his day of service was ended, he went back home. He went back home to Elizabeth and he went back to his normal life. And then verse 24, it says, after these days... So after he's back home, his service has ended and all is done, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And so after the days of service, uh, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, just like the angel had promised. And she hides away for five months. Now, it's likely, and my, my suspicion is that she does, she does that in order to allow the pregnancy to take, allow it to get to that stage where uh, the baby has grown enough to where she can confidently say, yes, we're going to survive this. Because at her age and her condition, uh, this was unusual in the first place, but the ability to uh, carry a child, uh, the probability of a misconception or some problems would have been very high. So she was waiting for long enough to just, just to ensure that this is for real. Uh, that the disfavor of God has been broken and her barrenness was removed. And so she waits a little while saying this, that the Lord has done this for me, that he looked upon me and he took away my reproach. He took away my barrenness. This would have been her reproach. And so this is real similar to the birth of Isaac in Genesis chapter 21, uh, verses 1 and 2, where we see Sarah's womb is opened. And it says that Abraham, who was as good as dead, Romans chapter 4 verse 19 tells us, that when Sarah was impregnated, Abraham was that old. And this brings, would have brought to mind to the Jewish listener, to the Jewish audience, it would have brought to mind Abraham and Sarah type implications. The one to bring about the promise 
the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled through this line. Here we've got John from the line of Aaron, priestly representative towards God, is continuing on this birth saga, this birth account that would have been the forerunner of the Messiah. We start the Old Testament, we start God's covenant with his people, with the Abrahamic covenant in the birth of his child, and we follow that all the way through Malachi with the anticipated coming of the Messiah and the forerunner that's going to come before him. And that's exactly what Luke is laying out here as we start this, that John is that anticipated forerunner. He's got a miraculous birth to a couple who is righteous and holy and just and and serving and, and the best of the best crop. And he opens their womb past their age and gives them this child who's going to be that forerunner, bringing people back and preparing them for the Lord. And so we need to keep in mind, God is a God of miracles. And we need to know that God will do this for us. God will hear our prayers. God answers our prayers And God does respond in his way and in his time. And we need to act in faith and trust that he is going to do that. And so I want to leave you today with that priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. It says in verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and I say to you today, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Check out mathetide.org. We've got an outline uh, of the entire book of Luke uh, and some notes of where we're headed, uh, as well as lots of other studies and resources and merch. Uh, leave us a comment, uh, share this with a friend, and we'll see you next time here on Mathetide.